When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Christmas. Tis the season to be jolly, sing carols and eat far too much. And also, the season to spend. Retailers can spend months preparing for the seasonal splurge when consumers loosen their belts and open their wallets. In the final three months of the year, the British toy industry makes as much as half of its sales. Think of all the effort that goes into the logistics of Christmas. All the elves who have to be hired on temporary contracts, then trained up, then fired once the season is done. All that work to get stuff to the shelves in Santa's Grotto just at the right time. All of the angst that goes into finding that pile of presents under the tree. And then think of all that energy spent masking disappointment with delight. Oh, that's what I always wanted. He hates it. An economist thinks of all this and sees inefficiency and asks, is there any way of getting rid of it? You are listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. In London, I'm Sumeya Keynes. Also in London, I'm Alice Fulwood. And also, also in London, I'm Mike Bird. And in today's show, we explore the economics of Christmas and review the past year. First, we'll ask how recent retail trends affect the inefficiency of gift giving. January is when everyone returns the stuff, the Christmas gifts that didn't fit, the things that were in the wrong colours. Then we'll hear about how seasonal spending habits have changed over the past century. As income has continued to rise in the US past 2000, the dollar volume of gift-giving has fallen. And we'll finish off by quizzing each other on our biggest and best stats of the year. Mike, Alice, how's it going? Very well. I am uh, full of holiday cheer. Yes, especially great that we are all here in London together. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing that you both had such important work meetings in the London office in late December. You know, what work could I possibly be doing in America that would be more important than uh, bonding with my colleagues during this festive season? Absolutely. I feel exactly the same. Uh, I hear Samaya may not be quite as merry as we are. This is the episode where we get to lean into the idea that economists are miserable Scrooges because they think exchanging presents is a waste of time and Christmas should be cancelled. Mike, that is a cruel mischaracterization of the original research. But yeah, basically this episode is about the inefficiencies associated with Christmas gift giving and how they might be changing over time. 
Okay, just to be clear, when it comes to gift giving or gift receiving for that matter, I will strongly resist anything concluding that Christmas is bad. Rather than gift inefficiencies, my favourite seasonal inefficiency, if I get to pick one, is a stock market one. There's this thing called the Santa Claus Rally. So stock markets have historically risen in value in the run-up to Christmas. Obviously, that pattern shouldn't really exist if markets are efficient. If stock markets always rallied in December, investors should swoop in and take advantage of the pattern in November and then before that, and eventually it would die out. There is some evidence that the Santa rally effect has been falling over the past few decades. I like the idea that Christmas is just a sort of wealth effect from rising asset prices, (laughs) temporary every year. Um, I should jump in as well and say there is also a Chinese New Year effect for stock markets in a lot of different parts of Asia. Okay, well, before we all get carried away with these other inefficiencies, my favourite inefficiency is the inefficiency associated with gift exchange. And that's not entirely because I find the whole exercise extremely stressful. And I also should say that just to reassure you, Alice, just because there's some inefficiency in this process, it doesn't mean that present giving is bad overall. So take this famous study of the dead weight loss of Christmas. This was by Joel Waldfogel, who's at the University of Minnesota, very well known among econ nerds. And what he did was compare the cost of Christmas gifts with how much people valued them after any exchanges and also trying to put sentimental value aside. There are actually quite a few papers looking into this, how much value is destroyed, how much stuff is unwanted, essentially. And I think that the clearest one was published in 2005 with the result that $100 spent on someone else is typically only worth as little as $85 of spending done by that other person directly. Because, you know, you try your best, you try to get the ideal gift, but people ultimately end up making not the perfect choice. They struggle to know what people actually want, and that ends up destroying value. And the thing to emphasize, though, is that this sentimental value, the warm, fuzzy feelings that go along with gift giving, gift receiving, all of that matters. So this value destruction isn't relative to a world in which there was no gift giving. It's relative to a perfect world in which the giver can perfectly anticipate what the recipient wants, in which case you get this warm, fuzzy feeling and also a highly valued gift that you really, really want. So economists are still allowed to uh, want the warm, fuzzy feelings and, and give gifts? Yes, absolutely. You can give and receive as many gifts as you want. This is me giving you permission. Um, and, you know, economists should appreciate the value of sending a signal that the recipient really matters to them. It's about building social capital. Please won't you accept this signal that you matter to me, Sumeya, is what I'll write on all my uh, gift wrapping this year, I guess. Though I am comforted that, that present giving isn't too off-brand. But the paper is, is sort of quite an old one. What is new in this field of research? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to look at whether this inefficiency, which, as you say, is not a new concept, I wanted to look at whether it might be changing over time. And what we don't have is very good surveys that are consistent over time to tell whether this gap between what people pay for gifts and how much the recipients value them have been changing. But you can think about the factors affecting inefficiency and how those might have changed. So I've definitely noticed it changing over time, mostly because I used to wake up with a stocking at the end of my bed, which was full of presents. And then at some point that stopped happening, which sort of killed the vibe for me. Uh, A little bit more seriously, the biggest inefficiency for me personally has been in growing up. When you're a kid, everything you get is great. Um, There are far fewer disappointments on that side. So at least in your adult life, surely you can return things you don't really want 
fairly easily. Doesn't that affect how these things work? Yes, it absolutely does. I mean, it's not exactly a scoop to say that e-commerce has been growing, but it obviously has. Um, In the UK, it's actually gone from around a tenth of retail sales a decade ago to around a quarter today. And as e-commerce has grown, so have options for sending stuff back. You can drop things off in lockers, newsagents, supermarkets. And in theory, you're right, if it's incredibly easy to return that horrible, horrible Christmas jumper and get a new one instead, at the end of the day, you should end up with a bunch of stuff that you would have paid more to acquire in the first place. That value destruction shouldn't be quite so high. And I mean, it does look like people use these options. I was talking to um, Al Gary, who's the CEO of ZigZag, which is a returns company. And he was saying that return rates for things with a gift message or a gift wrapping tend to be a lot higher. So if you look at the example of fashion, normally return rates are between 25 and 50%. But if it looks like it's a gift, it's more like 30 to 60%. Um, So yeah, people make mistakes and recipients do return a lot of stuff. Is this a good time to uh, bring up the fact that I do in fact have a gift for Christmas for you, Sumeya, and uh, I have got you a gift receipt so you can exchange it if you want, but I have it with me now (laughs) if you want it. Um, Do I have to tell you whether I'm going to exchange it? That would be a fun experiment. (laughs) It might be completely savage. (laughs) But I guess you can uh, make that assessment when I give it to you uh, maybe later in the show. Still, the way that returns might interact with gift giving means that there might be kind of a moral hazard here, right? So people are maybe a bit more relaxed about buying things because they know the recipient can just exchange them if they they don't like them. Right. And that could impose fairly high costs on retailers. So the, the, the problem is that the returns process is actually incredibly expensive for the retailers. So what you have is this seamless returns process reducing the potential for inefficiency associated with people getting stuck with presents they don't want. But it also means lumping a cost onto companies. And if customers don't face the direct cost of returns, if that's just kind of spread over all consumers in the form of kind of generally higher prices, the risk is that they end up returning too much. And so retailers have to deal with a sort of different cost. To talk about this in more depth, though, I wanted to chat to our colleague, Ori Ogunbi, who is our healthcare and consumer correspondent. She's been looking at this issue of returns, and I wanted to get a bit more detail on what exactly has been going on here. Ori, hello. Hi. You are our retail correspondent, so tell me exactly why retailers dread January. Well, January is when everyone returns the stuff, the Christmas gifts that didn't fit, the things that were in the wrong colours. And there are these seasonal peaks. So, for example, after Black Friday and after Cyber Monday. And another big one is after Christmas because everyone's sending back the gifts that they didn't really like. But I've actually been looking into how young consumers spend and kind of the changing patterns in how they shop. So, for example, they're really demanding. They like seamlessness at every point from the buying to the returning, and they buy lots and lots of colours, lots of sizes, basically with plans to actually send lots of them back. Right, so this is very relevant for our Christmas gift-giving issue. How much do these returns pose a headache for retailers? So it's a literal logistical nightmare. I mean, it's really expensive to get something from the people who shop 
back to the shelves. You have to cover postage. Um, you've also got to inspect things. There are sniff tests. You've got to look for like makeup and see any kind of signs that like these items have been worn. And then you've got to repackage them, get them to warehouses, get them back onto shelves. And it basically just creates lots of delays and ties up stock as well. So it's just an extra annoying step for any retailer who's trying to deal with keeping this process seamless. Right. I mean, I was actually talking to Al Gary, who's the CEO of this company called ZigZag, that is a software platform that deals with these returns for various retailers. And he told me it costs somewhere between five and ten pounds per item on average, which seems like a lot for what could be fairly low value items. Does that sound about right to you? Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. I mean, if you think about it, I don't know how much you shop online, but you rarely see those prepaid labels in the packages anymore. So you actually have to request a return now because you have to basically go out of your way to tell a retailer that you want to do this. And basically smaller retailers are making you pay because they can't afford to cover it anymore. So five to ten pounds sounds about right to me. And what about bigger retailers? What are they doing to combat this issue that people are returning lots and lots of stuff because they can because it's free? The bigger retailers are now charging for returns as well. And I think historically... They've had to persuade customers that buying things online was okay and super straightforward, so haven't charged people historically, but are beginning to now because they're realising it's just such a faff and it's no longer worth it for them. I guess the question is how risky this is for the retailers, right? I mean, if there is this really strong norm that lots of them are not charging for returns, isn't the danger that if you're the first mover, if you're the retailer that starts charging for returns, you could lose a bunch of customers? I think it would have been riskier in like the earlier days of e-commerce, I think now they're relying on the fact that people have become so dependent and so reliant on shopping online that they're not going to be deterred by a couple extra pounds in a returns fee. So effectively, even though it might cost them a little bit, it's not enough of a deterrent to stop them from buying online or from, from these retailers at all. So I don't think they're going to be losing that many customers. And if they do, I think the retailers have decided that it's worth it. Okay, so as I was talking to Al Gary, who I mentioned before at ZigZag, he was saying that this trend of charging for returns, you can really, really see it in the data. And so I think it was over the past year, the number of paid for returns has doubled, whereas the number of free ones has actually fallen. Do you think this trend is here to stay? Do you think that retailers will ever be able to charge the full cost of processing a return? I think the trend is definitely here to stay. The seamlessness that consumers are demanding more and more is going to come at a cost and someone's going to have to pay for it. I don't think, though, that we're going to get to a point where people are charging that full five to ten pounds that you were talking about earlier because a lot of people are buying items that cost much less than that. So I don't actually see that happening. I think it's going to settle somewhere in the middle. Okay, well, I suppose if that trend is here to stay, then that is good news for the kind of inefficiency that retailers worry about with these excess returns. But I guess worrying news, if you're like me and you're concerned about some consumers being put off by these return fees, admittedly still quite low return fees, and not returning unwanted Christmas gifts, one efficiency being replaced by another, perhaps. Ore, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. After the break, we'll look at Christmas inefficiencies over a longer time horizon with the economist who first gave us Scroogeonomics. But first, it's that time in the show when we're going to ask you to subscribe to The Economist. 
It will give you access to this week's incredible Christmas issue, which includes an article on which types of dogs are most popular, as well as Alice's must-read piece on the economics of thinness, and of course, our leader picking the country of the year. Country of the year this year wasn't exactly a nail-biter. One colleague suggested writing a leader that was just one line long. Ukraine is the country of the year. That didn't happen, so subscribers can get multiple really excellent and important sentences on just why Ukraine is our country of the year. Listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. And if you're already a subscriber, thank you. You should check out our newsletters like Money Talks and The Bottom Line. The links to those are in the notes to this episode. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Trends in e-commerce and returns policies are not the only things affecting the economics of Christmas. To get a broader view, I wanted to speak to Joel Waldfogel, Professor of Business and Economics at the University of Minnesota and author of that study from 1993 describing the deadweight loss of Christmas. As well as finding out about a new Christmassy study he just put out, I wanted to ask him whether he thought the deadweight loss might be changing. Joel, hello. Hello. Do you have a sense as to whether the inefficiency associated with gift giving might be changing over time, either increasing or decreasing? Well, I think in some important ways it has been decreasing. And first of all, let me also be very specific about what one would mean by inefficiency here. And I would mean not whether gift giving as an overall activity is delivering satisfaction, but rather whether gift giving as an activity is a good way to choose what people actually like. And so it's pretty well known that gift giving is a poor way to allocate resources. But one way it's become much more efficient over the past couple of decades, at least in the U.S., is that people have begun to substitute gift cards for particular items. Now, I I realize that's unromantic and not very thoughtful, but it appears to be very well liked by recipients. And it gives the recipients the ability to choose what particular item that they ultimately get. So in that sense... In the sense of resource allocation, gift giving has become, I think, a lot more efficient over the past couple of decades. And what do we know about gift cards versus cash? I mean, couldn't the rise of gift cards just be replacing cash as a gift? Well, it's not just replacing cash. Cash used to be an acceptable gift really in the U.S., only from older people to younger people. It would have been very odd, say, to give cash to one's significant other or to one's sibling. But cash was fairly common from grandparents and aunts and uncles. Now, gift cards, I think, are also quite common from those sorts of givers. But gift cards are also quite common among people of sort of equal social status and age. So cash and its equivalents have become much more common. And have you done any comparisons here? I mean, can we say anything about who and where is most efficient when it comes to gift giving? 
So the, the people who tend to do a good job of choosing items that recipients actually want are the people who are in close proximity and frequent contact with the recipients. So it's people who know what you want and maybe what you already have, what size you should wear. The people who do a poor job have tended traditionally to be the people in infrequent contact. And so that's unfortunately aunts and uncles and, and grandparents. But those are precisely the people who always understood they weren't very good at this and gave a lot of cash and now a lot of gift cards. Now let's talk about your new Christmas economics paper. Um, so first of all, what's the question and, and why did you ask it? Well, I was interested in knowing how gift giving or, or expenditures on gift giving have evolved over a century or so in the U.S. as the U.S. has become a richer and richer country. There is a sort of a technical issue here, which is what kind of a good in economic jargon is gift giving. You know, we call goods normal if when income rises, we spend more on them. And we call them luxuries if when income rises, we not only spend more, but a greater fraction of our income on them. And we call them this unpleasant word inferior if as income rises, we spend less on them. Now, there's one more sort of complicated feature here, which is that there are two different ways, really, to document what sort of a good a good is. One is to look across people at a point in time, asking, do people with more money spend more? Another way is to look over time. As the society gets richer, does it spend more? Just to clarify, how do you measure that spending on, on gift giving? The basic way I measure gift giving is by looking at monthly, non-seasonally adjusted retail sales. And in most countries, I mean, I'm looking here at the U.S., but I've looked at other countries in the past. In most countries, there's a big spike in December relative to the months around it. And this is, of course, Christmas holiday gift giving that's doing this. The basic way I measure is to look at December minus the average of January and November, so minus the average of the months around it. But I also entertain December relative to October and so forth. And it's all essentially about the same. And so what did you find? Over the course of the 20th century in the U.S., as income rose, spending on gifts, that is the spending during December relative to the months around it, tended to, to rise and rise quickly early in the century. According to the time series relationship, one would have classified gift giving as a luxury activity. As the century wore on, though, the income elasticity of demand for gift giving actually fell. It remained positive, meaning that as income rose, holiday gift giving continued to rise, but it began to rise more slowly than income rose. By the time we got to the, the turn of the 21st century, things began to change. As income has continued to rise in the U.S. past 2000, gift giving has actually fallen. The dollar volume of gift giving has fallen. Now, to be careful here, that doesn't mean that gift giving is inferior. It means that in the time series, it looks inferior. But it's really important to say that in the cross sections, contemporary cross sections across households, higher income households still spend more than lower income households. So it's technically a normal good still. Okay, great. So you basically look at the relationship between, as a society, when we get richer, do we spend more or less on gift giving? And it looks like we've been shifting away from gift giving as we have become richer. How unusual is it that you would have a good where, essentially, if you just look at rich people versus poor people, it seems that rich people spend more on something. But then if you think about the economy as a whole, that trend is very different. 
So there are a couple things to say here. I think one is just that certain kinds of goods, when they first appear, are only available to rich people. And so they show up looking like luxuries. And then over time, we all come to have them. So they look like, you know, normal goods or necessities. But a different question is which sorts of goods or how common is it for goods to look one way across people and another way over time. But I think what's going on here is a shift in preferences away from choosing stuff for other people during December. What's your preferred explanation uh, for what's going on here? You know, it could be, for example, that people are still giving a lot, but they're giving gift cards, which don't show up as retail sales in December. They show up instead in January or February. But arguing against that is the fact, apparently, that, you know, if you look at the Gallup surveys, People are expecting to spend less overall on giving over the past 20 years, and that would presumably include the gift cards. So that makes me think that we seem to be shifting away from wanting to spend a lot on holiday gifts. Couldn't it be that, say, Black Friday, the rise of Black Friday is causing a problem? So you might have some sales that were due to come in December shifting to November, And so both if you're comparing December to, say, November, or if you're comparing December to even September, that's going to make the December sales numbers look artificially low. Is that a problem? It seems in principle as though it could be, although looking at the monthly retail sales data over the years, I really have never been able to see that. So I don't think that's what's going on in the data, although I'm sure if I had daily data that I would see some activity toward the end of November that is almost surely holiday related. I guess thinking more about the shift in preferences, could it just be that we're treating ourselves all year round and so there isn't that much need to save up and and really splurge in December? It entirely could. I don't think we're spending less overall. It's just that we're doing less of it through this blind, inefficient way that ends up being somewhat unsatisfying to people. You know, perhaps it's a realization that gift-giving for all of its wonderful attributes, is a poor way to choose stuff for people. And if we're really going to choose stuff for people, let's let the wise choosers or more effective choosers do it. So maybe we just do it in the rest of the year without the blindness. Maybe the economists have, maybe their their teachings have infiltrated to the rest of the population. One thing I would want to say, though, since I'm one of the economists associated with giving gift giving a bad name is, In my view, the problem is not really gift giving. The problem is the need to give a large number of gifts all at once. I mean, it's kind of wonderful to stumble upon something that you think would be great for someone you know well. It's kind of wonderful to do that. I think the challenge is doing that for 10 different people all during, well, late November and early December each year. That's sort of a recipe for misallocation. And it's hard for me to believe that that really is making people terribly happy. Joel, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Alice, what did you think? Too Scrooge-ish? A little bit Scrooge-ish, but even Professor Waldfogel does not want to be known as Professor Scrooge. He sort of seems to be emphasising that it's it's mostly inefficient to give all these gifts at once than to give gifts in general. I do think gift cards are a bit lame, and they do have inefficiencies of their own. I've definitely forgotten about a couple of mine. In terms of thinking about sort of why there would be this trend of seasonal spending falling, I mean, maybe this is too miserable, even uh, even for you, Samir. But when he's talking about demographic changes, I know he didn't sort of think that the reduced number of kids that people were having was a big factor. But I couldn't help thinking about surveys that show that we now have sort of fewer mates in general these days as well. 
yeah, I mean, I actually also wondered whether it could be related to having smaller networks, so people not giving as much to extended family. So maybe you used to have Christmas with your fourth cousin twice removed, and now you might be more likely to celebrate just with your nuclear family, and that means fewer presents, perhaps. Mike, did you have any potential explanations? I was thinking about seasonal spending in general, and and the thing that it always comes back to for me is is sort of food around Christmas. And you don't need to go that many decades back for that sort of consumption to be a huge luxury. The sort of things you eat at Christmas were things that you could only afford maybe once a year. That's not necessarily true in a lot of parts of the world anymore. And I wondered whether that was smoothing things out across the year a little bit. It's just not quite as much of a sort of exceptional treat in the way that it was then. Yeah, I think that also can apply to a lot of other sorts of retail spending, right? Before you might save up for that games console or that special outfit or whatever, and now it's just a click away, and so you sort of treat yourself all year round. You mentioned other countries. I mean, after talking to Joel, I did wonder whether there was a similar trend in other countries, specifically the UK. I didn't replicate his exercise exactly, but what I did was look at how important November and December are as spending months relative to the whole year. And when you look at, say, spending on clothes, that share of spending happening in November, December has been trending lower since the 1980s when when we first get data. And you actually see the same thing for total retail sales, although it's a much, much more gradual, slower trend. So that is consistent with this idea that seasonality has also been falling in time in, in the UK. I should, I suppose, add the caveat that in 2021, the pandemic just did odd things to the profile of spending. So November, December shot up again in importance. Uh, but everyone I spoke to seemed to suggest that it was just a bit weird and would probably be ironed out. That's really interesting. And you'd sort of expect that to be related to seasonality and other things too. Do you see the same thing, for instance, in employment? Yeah, you do actually. The the number of seasonal workers recorded by the, the Office for National Statistics as a share of total employment in, in December, that's also been falling. And this actually relates to a whole separate set of inefficiencies, right, to do with the fact that when you have very uneven demand over the year, you either need a bunch of people doing not very much in the off-season or you need to incur these huge costs of hiring people at the start of the season, training them up and then getting rid of them again, like those elves from the introduction. So, yeah, the the inefficiencies are endless as as long as you know where to look. Um, Mike, did, did you have any other thoughts about this this fun seasonal topic? Yeah, it got me thinking about Chinese New Year, Lunar New Year, which just has it sorted in comparison to Christmas. There is still, obviously, seasonality in spending, but the standard gift is cash. So you can very easily avoid those sort of deadweight losses that economists hate. There's a pretty well-understood hierarchy in terms of who gives Lysi or Hongbao uh, red packets containing cash. If you've got employees, maybe office staff like cleaners or, or doormen in the building you live in, you give money to them. Uh, you get money from your parents, maybe your grandparents. Married couples are on the hook to give more. It's pretty sort of naturally redistributive as well as being very clean. Um, no thought required, just crisp banknotes. Or in the case in China now, you can even give digitally. So it's the sort of stone-hearted economist's natural gift-giving event. Yeah, as much as I like presents, I do also like cash. Don't we all? Let us move on to our final segment of the show, where I thought we could do a roundup of some of the biggest and best stats of the year related to episodes that we've done. 
And I also thought we could make it into a quiz because this is my episode and I make the rules. <laughs> so I told you both to prepare some stats and we're going to go around and try to guess what we're all talking about. Mike, why don't you go first? Yes, absolutely. My stat is 29.85. I'll give you another clue. It's in dollars. The shrinking of the Ukrainian economy this year? You think it shrank by $29.85. Oh, I thought you meant 29.85%. No, I don't know why. dollars. Okay. Very specific. Is that the difference between the energy price on the spot market and the level of the energy price cap? You're sort of along the right lines here, but this is actually the difference between Ural's oil per barrel and Brent. Um, so this is the massive gap that opened up as soon as the war started and it widened uh, and then it narrowed a bit around the time the cap was coming in and now it's widening again. But it's just showing that there's so many fewer buyers of Russian oil than there used to be. Uh, it's a much smaller market. It's not how much the Ukrainian economy has contracted by. That would be a great result for Ukraine, but sadly that is not the answer. Sorry, you wanted us to guess the gap between oil prices to two decimal places? Uh, no, I actually gave you the number, so you didn't need to guess it I to know, two decimal places. Like, you just give... needed to tell me what it was about. I'm just trying to bring in a bit of accuracy, <laughs> a bit of rigour. No no, roughly $30 nonsense around here. Okay, my turn next. Uh, my stat is a quarter of its value. Uh, is this total crypto market cap as a percentage of what it was at the beginning of the year? Uh, no, that actually would be a turn up on the books for crypto. Crypto is down by about two thirds versus I, I, uh, the peak. Okay. Anyway, okay. what about the other thing that has fallen in value this year? <laughs> uh, tech stocks, closer, but also wrong. Yeah, it was a specific tech stock. So, in particular, I was talking about Meta, which shed a quarter of its value in a single trading day twice this year, sort of once at the beginning of the year and once in September. It is one of the sort of most brutally sold off tech stocks. And I think it really sort of like signifies the turn that tech has taken. Okay, so in conclusion, this quiz is terrible because it is basically <laughs> impossible to work out the answers. <laughs> Apart from mine, I've got an easy one for you. My stat is 33 of 37. I think I knew this one in part because I think I read it in Henry Kerr's special report, uh, which is the share of central banks that have raised interest rates this year. Well, I actually went and calculated the stat afresh. So I'm not, not plagiarising from, from Henry's special report. But yes. OK, so bonus follow up question. Which four central banks have not raised interest rates since the end of 2021? Well, I can give you one for sure. The Bank of Japan has not raised interest rates. What are the others? To be clear, I mean, the other central banks for which rates were lower in October than they were at the end of yeah. 2021. Okay, that is a good question, though. Uh, Turkey, maybe? It's like rate cycles mismatched. Of course. Yeah, Turkey, correct. Number two, okay. Got two more? I feel like this is wrong, but Brazil started tightening really early. That is it's, wrong. Yeah, you feel okay. it's wrong, and it, okay. and it is wrong. Yeah, yep. <laughs> it's wrong. Yeah. Okay, give us a hint. Two economies that have faltered over the past year. Ukraine. Ukraine and Russia? Russia. Russia. I'm not actually sure Ukraine was in this data set. Okay. What's the fourth? Quite a big one. Oh, China. There we go. Oh, right. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Should have got that one at the beginning. So my next stat is minus 24.4%. So this is not another sharp market move. It's a, it's a government data point. All right. 
something to do with housing in China, your favourite topic? Oh, you're very close. You're very close. I'm sort of tempted to give it to you on that, but it's... The decrease in, like, construction? Colder, oh. slightly further away from it now. Samaya, have you got a guess? The decrease in government support for... I'm trying to read your face and it's not going well for me. <laughs> you guys were very close. It's the land sales revenue in China. So this is going to be a big story in the next year, I think. Basically, Chinese local governments make a huge amount of their money through land sales. In January to November, land sales fell 24.4% relative to what they were last year. Uh, this is going to be a really big deal next year. If those land prices rebound, you'll see a lot of fiscal pressure uh, relieved for local governments in China. But that will mean you'll see the house prices start going up again. If they don't rebound, then you're going to see a lot of problems start to crop up in various parts of China. Even with the reopening, I think this is going to be a really, really big story in China next year. And yeah, well done. You're very close to the actual answer. I feel like that's because I know what you're obsessed with more than that your stat gave me any clues about what the content of it was. I mean, it doesn't It doesn't matter how you guessed, right? You guessed. <laughs> you nearly, nearly got it. Uh, well, if you bear in mind what I'm obsessed with, it might help you with this next stat. So my other stat of the year is 6.15 trillion. Is that the value of a crypto coin? It's got to be the total market cap of crypto, which is what I thought it was for the previous question. <laughs> okay, it's it's closer to what Samir suggested than what you suggested. The total market cap of crypto right now is like 900 billion. Something to do with FTX? 6.1 trillion. FTX times a few <laughs> thousand. <laughs> Imagine if my sat were like, the value of FTX investments multiplied by this. <laughs> Added to yeah. this, you'd be like... Yeah. I'd be like, great stat. <laughs> the squared value of this minor coin. Like. So you're definitely along the right lines. Basically, when I was reflecting on the year, I was like, which crypto moment sort of set off all the dominoes and caused it all to collapse? And I thought it was the Terra Luna crisis and sort of collapse in that stable coin. And 6.15 trillion is the number of Luna tokens that were issued over three days the three days that sort of unpicked the the Terra stable coin. So that is why Luna went through the floor and that is why Terra no longer to maintain its peg and that it transpired, knocked out a hedge fund, knocked out a load of other crypto businesses and eventually knocked out FTX. So it's obviously been a huge and quite terrible year for crypto. And if I had to pinpoint a moment where it all started really to go wrong, it was with the uh, 6.15 trillion Luna tokens. Yeah, oh, it does, does sound like too many. The final stat of this quiz does not, in fact, relate to a past episode, but it does relate to something that's happening early next year and has been going on for much of this year. It is 36 and a half. I uh, can look at you and guess what this one might be, which is how many weeks pregnant you are. Alice, correct. Well done. <laughs> Huzzah. I'm uh, very much looking forward to you naming your child either Mike for a boy, uh, Michaela or Michelle for a girl, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I haven't yet consulted my husband, but it is very safe to say that my family decisions will be 100% tied to this podcast. So actually, it will be Mike if it's a boy and Alice if it's a girl. And yes, this will be my final episode for a little while. But don't worry, my temporary replacement will be the wonderful Tom Lee Devlin, our global business correspondent, who, in fact, as it happens, has just popped into the studio. Tom, hello. 
Hello. Uh, very excited to be joining you all in the new year, and I will be sure to keep your seat warm for you while you're away, Samaya. Why, thank you, and that is good, because who knows, maybe I'll pop in from time to time. Great. You can bring a baby mic in. Yeah, absolutely. And there is just time for me to give you your present, which, if you don't return it, perhaps you could dress baby Mike in. But here you go, Sumaya. Merry Christmas. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, look at this. (laughs) It's so cute. Okay, I'm definitely, definitely not going to return this. It is beautiful, a beautiful, teeny tiny baby jumper. Yeah, well, hopefully, uh, hopefully it will suit baby Mike. I mean, he's not actually going to be called Baby Mike. <laughs> Just FYI. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, it's not even in the running? No. <laughs> oh. And with all of that very inefficient gift-giving out of the way, a huge thanks to Joel Waldfogel of the University of Minnesota. Thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. The show will be back next week with our favourite episode of the year and look out for brand new episodes from January when we'll start releasing the podcast every Thursday. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher. Our sound engineer is Nico Raufast. The executive producer is Hannah Marino. I'm Alice Fullwood. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Samaya Keynes. And this is The Economist. Should we do like a Merry Christmas? Nah. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, can we please play that at the end? Can we do very good? Nah. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum.